Welcome to episode 23 of the Pogma Goal podcast. Editor Paul McGoal, and you're listening to the 23rd installment of the podcast centre back pairing of Ireland's only football magazine. Our series looks at football culture from around the world, and we've just taken delivery of the brand new issue 8 of the magazine. Over 70 pages of photography and illustration from Ireland, the UK, France, Germany, Italy, Australia, and more. It also includes features on the greatest cult footballer you've never heard of, Ben Torin's European adventures. Hungarian data pioneers from over half a century ago, Denise O'Sullivan's rising career and much more. Order your brand new copy online now at pogmagold.com. On today's episode we're joined by Killian Shields, a Barcelona-based journalist working for the Catalan news agency whose interests include football culture, politics and underdogs. But first I'm delighted to be joined as ever by my co-host Taylor Geel communications manager based in London and as a Portsmouth fan must be lamenting that goalkeeper Gavin Bazunu is headed back to his parent club Manchester City. Welcome back Taylor. Is he? I didn't know that. Well he was on loan wasn't he so uh, you'll have to hurry up you're going to sign him permanently. Damn I didn't know that. I think he's a man in demand. (laughs) Yeah I'd imagine he is he's put in some shifts for for your uh, national team recently so Yeah. yeah I imagine he is in demand. Exactly. Taylor, one of Killian's articles in the brand new issue 8 is about the great Johan Cruyff's less than stellar return to Spain when he joined Levante in the second division in the twilight of his career, having also appeared in the old North American Soccer League. So my question to you is, who do you regard as the biggest or most famous player to have played for your club? After Gavin Bazunu, of course. (laughs) Um, Well, it's a tricky one, but I I would have to say that... um... My, my experience of watching Portsmouth kind of began the season we got promoted to the Premier League and uh, Paul Merson was absolutely amazing in that season. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, I think he was in his kind of mid-30s when he joined us, but he was still absolutely magic and, you know, didn't win us the league single-handedly. Uh, I think Todorov scored nearly 30 goals that season, but Merson was just unbelievable. But then when we came up to the Premier League, we seemed to spend so much money. We had so many stars playing for us. Um, we had, you know, Yakubu, we had Teddy Sheringham, an ageing Tim Sherwood. We had we had a few few big names, but yeah, Merce was my favourite. Yeah, I mean, I'm an Arsenal fan, but to go with the lesser known, my time supporting Kilkenny City, the biggest player to play for Kilkenny was probably a, a local kid called Michael Reddy, who ended up signing for a premiership outfit, Sunderland. So he went from Kilkenny to, to the Premier League and he scored a, he scored a rebound of a penalty against Middlesbrough. So on the equivalent of the kind of Irish match of the day when he scored, that was huge in Kilkenny. Another player worthy of mention would be an unknown for most listeners, 
But a real Kilkenny man by the name of David Mulcahy, who Killian will know as a Bohemians fan. So Davy Mull was like a, is a League of Ireland stalwart, played with many clubs, Bowes, St. Pat's, Waterford and Kilkenny City. And here's a bit of trivia. He scored the last goal at the Old Lansdowne Road, which was an FAI Cup final with St. Pat's. And he scored again at the revamped Lansdowne Road, which was a League of Ireland selection against Manchester United. Man United won 7-1 and Davy Mull scored against Man United. And so today's guest is Killian Shields, a Catalonia-based journalist and author, as I said, of two articles in a brand new issue eight. One on Johan Cruyff, but also one entitled Punks, Outcasts and Anti-Fascists on the lesser-known Catalan outfit CE Jupiter, which became a magnet for anarchists and activists in the turbulent early 20th century in Spain. So welcome to the Pogan Gold podcast, Killian. Thanks a million for having me on, James and Taylor. Killian, off air you were saying you're a well-travelled man with lots of kind of teams that you would have a soft spot for. But who's who would be the biggest player you've seen at perhaps a smaller club? Oh, that's a that's a fantastic question. Um, yeah, as I, as I mentioned to you, I've got a couple of teams that I like to keep an eye on. Uh, Bohemians being my, my Irish club that I grew up there, my, my most local team. But I also spent a year in Madrid about 10 years ago, so ever since then I've become a Rayo Vallecano fan. And at the moment, Rayo Vallecano have the great Colombian forward Falcao playing playing up front. He scored the winner uh, against Barcelona um, earlier on in the season. Um, incidentally, Rayo actually beat Barcelona twice this season, but he didn't make the second, the second match. Uh, but he would certainly be up there, and his signing sort of parallels a signing that Rayo made a few decades prior, when the great Mexican striker Hugo Sanchez signed for the club as well. He's probably more known for his time at Real Madrid, of course, but he did have a fantastic little year out in Bayecas near the end of his career, scoring in the vicinity of 16, uh, 15 goals, give or take one, I can't remember exactly. But yeah, I'd have to say Falcao, now Hugo Sanchez before my time, but Falcao I have seen this year. Excellent. I think you uh, usurp just about Davy Mull for Kenny <laughs> City. Killian. Ah, no, I wouldn't say that now myself. Now, <laughs> Davy Mull came to balls at a, a very delicate time for the club, shall we say, and he was a sort of experienced head that uh, gave a lot of help, I would say, to the squad in, in a difficult, difficult couple of years. He's the type of character that I think Bowes could do with a lot right now. There's a lot of raw talent in that team, and I think you just need a few kind of mid, mid-30s bruisers Maybe if they're like easily smoking 20 a day, but just, you know, get the boot in. We need we need the sort of experienced head like that, I think. Yeah. Killian, with all our guests, we like to ask them how they first got interested in football. I'll ask the same of you, but also how did you end up in Spain? Sure. Yeah. Um, two very different answers to those questions, really. How did I get into football? I'd say probably like most people, just through their family, through their fathers, um, I grew up supporting Everton. Everton are my dad's team ever since the 1960s when he decided to support them. Uh, but the very first match that I went to was actually a warm-up for the 2002 World Cup. It was an Ireland match. We played Nigeria. And I think we lost 2-0. Um, but... No, I was at that. Ah, maybe, maybe we were <laughs> sat beside each other for all we know. Maybe. Um, <laughs> but my overriding feeling of that was... You know, Ireland didn't do very much in the game. We lost the game. But I was absolutely gripped at 
what was before me just this carnivalesque atmosphere like thousands of people in jubilant moods watching this this match play out in front of our eyes so win lose or draw everyone was there to have fun it was an atmosphere obviously before the world cup which is obviously such a massive thing for ireland um so yeah the atmosphere was just amazing and, and that's what's really kept with me so i've taken that with me everywhere i go um you know i love to go to the stadium no matter what level it's at um wherever i am in the world be it in ireland i go to the league of ireland games be it in in spain i'll i'll i'll, I'll I've been to plenty of Barcelona games, both working and just paying for a ticket. If if there's a chance to see Messi a few years ago, for example, um, and even at the moment now that I'm living here, I go to a good few um, much lower category games. So in the previous issue of Pope Magal, I wrote about a club, Sant'Andreu. I go to them often. I've got a good few friends that go there. They they lost in the playoffs to get out of the sixth tier just a couple of weeks ago. Um, but in the upcoming issue, I've written about a club called Club Esportiu Jupiter, and they they actually think I think they just got relegated into the eighth tier. So we're talking we're talking semi professional or or maybe even amateur level there. <laughs> but it's just a case of every, like I, I I seek out clubs with um with particular fan bases that will that will create a good atmosphere, yeah. you know, and and that's that's really what stuck with me. Um, so yeah, that's my that's my journey of how I got into football, really from the that Ireland Nigeria match and the sort of philosophy that I've taken with me the whole way through. And you also asked me about how I ended up here in Barcelona. That's that's completely separate. So around five and a half years ago, six years ago, now at this stage, um, I found myself just in my mid twenties. Um, my partner was just out of college as well, and we just both had like a strong desire to just move away from Dublin, move away from Ireland. Um, at the moment, uh, you may or may not know that Ireland is, is a difficult place at the moment for people of my generation. Opportunities, rent, uh, very difficult to come by. Uh, so we just decided to try something else. We decided to pack our bags. Um, we booked an Airbnb for five days. We had no job lined up, no oppor- no no apartments lined up. And miraculously, we managed to find a place to live within those five days, which is not the regular occurrence. Like we know that from having to speak with having spoken with loads of people that live here, that usually the process of finding a place to live uh, is a lot longer than that. So we were very, very lucky. I'll admit that. But yeah, we had no idea whether it was going to be a one month thing, you know, no luck and just come home, maybe one year, maybe two years. And here we are five and a half years later with no plans to return really to Ireland. That's incredible, Killian. And were you working in journalism in Ireland or is this something you found yourself doing in, in uh, when you arrived in Barcelona? Yeah, so out of college, I, I studied media studies and Spanish. So I guess what I'm doing right now is absolutely perfect for me. You know, I'm again, I'm one of those lucky few people who are get to use <laughs> their degrees. Um, but in Ireland, I went straight out of college into this sort of a startup company that was aiming to be uh, sort of a betting website, but also had lots of content, lots of journalism on the side of it, and also be a social media platform. Uh, that hasn't really taken off, and and I was only in the company for about a year or so at that stage. Um, but following on from that, I found it quite difficult to get back into journalism, uh, so I was ended up working just in a pub for a few months before we then decided to move here. And my my first step was, okay, literally just find anything at all that will pay the bills. I worked a little bit in digital marketing, and that was a uh, that, that was an enjoyable experience as well, but in the whole time there, I always had the inkling that I wanted to get back into journalism. I definitely felt working in 
marketing that journalism was my passion journalism is what i wanted to go back into and yeah again i was just very very lucky enough to find this job here catalan news which is all it's a, it, it's a it's a news agency so they primarily sell stories photographs videos interviews to other media outlets here in catalonia and all in the catalan language but we're just one small faction of that that work in English. So be it for people like myself who speak English, who live here, that want to know the news of, happen of what's happening here, or else anyone from outside who might be interested in, for example, what's happening with the independence push, you've got an outlet in English to read there. Killian, it's such an amazing and adventurous thing to do, is just move, book an Airbnb for five days and see what happens. And just on the, you mentioned you work for a news agency, um, is it? Do you specialise in sport, or is it kind of general news? No, it's it's general news, and in fact, the agency doesn't have a sports section whatsoever. Um, just my team, as I said, we're the we're the English language team of the agency. We do do a little bit of sports, and that's primarily through me. But definitely, it's it's a very low priority that we do. So it, it's predominantly politics, uh, societal issues. Uh, protests, you know, the, a day doesn't go by without a protest here in Catalonia. Today, for example, the taxi sector were protesting against Cabify and Uber. Um, so things like this and the culture as well would be a big thing that we'd focus on. But sports is a very, very low priority. It's mostly me pushing it. And it's also part of the reason why I went to poke my goal and started pitching a few ideas because I've got this within me that I love working in sports. Uh, I mentioned I, I was working at a a place in Ireland as well. That was 100% sports-based. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I, can, I can see myself definitely in the future wanting to move a bit more full-time into sports. For the moment, I'm very happy with where I am and you know, I get to explore other topics that I want to write articles about thanks to Pogma Goal. And Killian, we love your stuff in the new edition and in the last one as well. I mean, Spain just and in general is fascinating. The history, the football culture there, that we tried to tap into. But we've had other guests like uh, David Toms, who spent time in the Czech Republic and then Norway. And I asked him about, was football kind of a way of introducing yourself into that community and that city? Was that your experience when you moved to Spain? I'd have to say probably not, to be honest, because, you know, when I first came, when I first came here, I'd go to the odd couple of games especially like Barca games if the tickets were especially cheap if they're playing you know very early on a Saturday afternoon or playing in the cup or whatever they'd put the tickets much cheaper than than normal um but it wasn't it took me a little while to find Santandreu which is the club that I go to uh, quite regularly um there's actually there's actually a fella that I met in the bar in Daily Mount probably nearly 10 years ago now that I was wearing a Rio Baicano jacket and this guy, he's from Barcelona, he came up to me, a complete unknown at the time, just slapped me on the back and said, what's this jacket about? You know, what's this? Like, how do you know Rayo Vallecano? Like, what the hell is this? Um, so, yeah, I was just back from Madrid at the time and we just got chatting. Um, and then, obviously, yeah, he's from Barcelona. Nacho is his name. Uh, Nacho Groundhopper, because he tends to go around to stadiums all over the world. Um, so that's sort of a social, social media name, uh, Groundhopper BCN. Uh, shout out to Nacho but yeah we, we just got chatting and one day he told me that there was a special 
match on that was a sort of a celebration for you might remember a few years ago clapton community fc had a jersey that was in the colors of the spanish republican flag red yellow and purple so that was a celebration of the the spanish second republic and the the strong left-wing values of all of that and you know the the fight against fascism which is sort of a backdrop to some of my articles as well that you might see so as a part of the celebration of the 90th anniversary of the Spanish Second Republic, Clapton were invited over to Jupiter to just play an exhibition match. Loads of fans came over from London. It was brilliant. Um, and yeah, my friend Nacho just told me to come to this match. And uh, so, so, so that's where I met one fella in particular who um, is a Scottish guy, Dom, uh, from Glasgow, Celtic fan. And yeah, I've just gotten to become very close friends with him. So... Even though it has taken a while, football's definitely been the vehicle through which I've found probably my closest friends here in Barcelona, in a foreign city. And that jersey and the Clapton trip is referenced in your article, which we'll jump into uh, in just a few moments. But what would you say is the appeal of the lower divisions in Spain in comparison to kind of the shiny Bernabeu or the Premier League, for example? What, what, how does it differ? How does it differ from League of Ireland, for example? Uh, I would actually say it's kind of similar to the League of Ireland in, in the sense that, you know, who are the type of people, who are the type of football fans that, that, that when you think about, oh, who do you support? You know, most people will probably say, you know, one of the big names, the Barcelonas, the Real Madrids. And then you get people like me and people like who go to League of Ireland matches and who go to lower league games in Jupiter or San Andreu who will say something completely opposite, you know, he'll say their local team and you know, maybe some people won't even have a clue who they are. And, you know, it happens everywhere, you know, where people try and slag you for like going to a, a quote unquote crap club, you know, but that crapness is like, is, is exactly what I enjoy. You know, it's, I find it a lot more authentic. I find it a lot more, you're, you're much closer to the players, you know, like both in a physical sense that you you can be get closer to the pitch, but also just in a in a sense that like these are guys who just have jobs like oftentimes outside of football, even if they're lucky enough to be full time in, prof- in in professional football, you know their personality they don't have egos, you know they're they're not swelling ahead of themselves. Um, another very important answer to your question is money. I mean, a single ticket for a Barcelona match could be more than a season ticket in San Andreu, for example. Last season, I paid 50 euro for my for my San Andreu season ticket every single match. Um, and it's something similar at all those levels, you know. And apart from that, I mean, the atmosphere, you know. I, I go to San Andreu, I go to Jupiter Games, I go to lower league football like that to to to, to make some noise, you know, to make a party in the stands and... You know, every so often when I go back to, you know, the more sanitized leagues, the much more like upper echelon, it's almost frowned upon to even stand up out of your seat, frowned upon to make too much noise, you know, at the at the at inappropriate times. Um, I, I prefer to just, you know, ha- have a have a party, you know, in the stands, have a good time. Yeah. <laughs> you referenced the Club San Andreo, which was your article in issue seven. I urged anyone to go back and read the article. So essentially it was a painting by Salvador Dali that he created for the club, isn't that right? And they they ended up auctioning it to raise funds. Exactly, exactly. It's fascinating, but the mystery goes far deeper than that, James, because they weren't actually able to sell the painting. Uh and it's since disappeared. Um 
no, at the moment, nobody knows where it is. But there are some allegations that one of the former presidents of the club actually nicked it himself. He did admit years later to robbing all sorts of other memorabilia, trophies, uh, very important government civil distinction awards. So he's admitted all of that and he's given a lot of it back. Some of the things he says he doesn't know where it is, but he's adamant that he does not have the Salvador Dali painting, which at the moment nobody knows where it is. Um, that president, it, it's Juan Gaspard, who is also a former president of Barcelona. So he's quite well known. It's a brilliant article, but it's one of two you have in the last issue and you have two more in this one. And I want to jump into punks, outcasts and anti-fascists. General Franco acting the part of El Cordillo with all the big show of a modern dictator. The new ruler of Spain rides into the city of his conquest. For the sake of her people, there must be one prayer. Troubled Spain may now find a lasting peace. Out of such repression, a culture of defiance was born. I am and I feel Catalan. I just signed with C. Jupiter, Barcelona, Spain. El Júpiter ensopegat a casa davant el Borges Blanques. What would happen to Spanish football if Catalonia did become a separate nation? I'll begin with a paragraph that I'm going to read out and I'll ask you to pick up the story about what the article expands on from there. Without necessarily intending to, Jupiter caught an aura of a club that was anarchist, Catalan, rebellious, dangerous. Those fundamentally opposed to states and borders and those in favour of creating a strong Catalan nation may not have seemed like natural allies, but common ground was found in a shared enemy, Spain. Take it away, Killian. I mean, that's just the story of politics in, in this part of the world for not just the last five years, not just the last hundred years, but many hundreds of years, really. Um, there's long been a sentiment of wanting independence here in Catalonia. Um, and what what I meant by those those two sides, anarchists and Catalan nationalists, they may not have, you know, those are kind of fundamentally opposite things. You know, anarchists want no states um and and catalan nationalists want a strong catalan state you know um so it's quite funny that they came together i think but but certainly spanish politics um catalan politics especially that time that i'm speaking about in that exact paragraph we're talking about the early 20th century i mean society was massively divided at the time you know on one side you've got conservatives uh monarchists the carlists and on the other side, you've got communists, you've got anarchists, you've got republicans, anyone vaguely left-wing, anyone vaguely progressive. And it was sort of divided in two with like a multitude of different various shapes and colors within those. Um, so so that's why they, they, were, they were sort of naturally friends along, along you know, in this context. Um, especially when the times where Primo de Rivera, which is the first of two fascist dictators that Spain had in the 20th century, especially in the 1920s, uh, especially during that regime, you know, repression was dished out to anyone on the left, be they communist, be they anarchist, be they Republican, be they whatever. They were repressed regardless, you know, without, <laughs> they were going to discriminate. Oh, well, you're, you're, you're an anarchist, so you don't want a Catalan stays, you know, so we'll leave you. No, it didn't work that way at all. 
Um, so it, it's it's just quite funny, and you can still see that divide in society today. But anarchism is 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 nowhere near as strong today as what it was a hundred years ago. Um, and at the moment, it, it's you know obviously we've gone through a hundred years of capitalism and fewer decades than that of neoliberalism and globalization. So you see very different um, conditions sort of uh, surrounding the outlooks of these things. But fundamentally, yes, society is still divided in that sort of left and right within there are plenty of multitudes of different shapes and colors within that as well at the same time. It's the, with see Jupiter, but we find a kind of common thread in other countries societal changes in that you know like the working week and conditions of the working class and that's where see jupiter became a vehicle for rebelling against this against the upper classes and and that's part of your story where it becomes this kind of haven for rebels uh, literally haven of like hiding guns precisely yeah at this point i'd really like to just thank francesc poblet who's the guy that I in, that I interviewed for the article. So pretty much everything that I say comes thanks to him. He's he's um, a local from that area of Barcelona. He's a Jupiter fan. And he's, a, he's an historian that works primarily on civil war things, the history of anarchism in Catalonia. And in his spare time, he's worked on the history of the club. So I owe a huge debt of gratitude to, to him. Um, but yes, the things that Francesc Poblet told me about were exactly all of this i mean at the time that we're speaking about the early 20th century we're talking about a time when industrialization was just really booming it was, it was really kick-starting not only here in catalonia but obviously across the world and the area that jupiter as a club are from in in barcelona it's it, they're from a neighborhood called poblenau uh, which literally translates to new town which probably at the time, or maybe even just a little bit before that, maybe in the 1800s, it was it was it was literally a separate town. I mean, it's not far; like you can walk maybe 20 minutes, half an hour from where I am in the city center, and you're there, you know. But at the time, you know, that was a much greater distance than what it is now. That we can just like pop on the metro and we're there in five minutes. Um, so yeah, we're we're talking about early 20th century, where industrialization is booming, um, but. These sort of advances in factories and technology, they didn't advance at the same pace as workers' rights. And so factories popping up, it was just another way for workers to be exploited. And at the time, Spain's fantastic at the moment for labor agreements, for for, for contract law, things like this. Workers have, have a lot of rights, but those rights are never given. In any country in the world, in any legal system in the world, those rights are never given. They're always fought for and they're always won. Uh, usually with a lot of uh, usually with a lot of violence and a lot of tension between the upper class and, and the working class so there's a fantastic history of of doing exactly that of fighting for it and and that times ugly history as i mentioned in the article as well like there was a brief period in the 1920s of a, a thing that's known here as pistolerisme which literally translates to something like a pistolerism, like, I mean, pistol being a gun. So it's just the sort of era that's, that's, that's known uh, by this term that refers to a sort of dirty war between the classes. Um, so there'd be, like, shootings on the streets. There'd be bombs. Um, you know, they'd be targeting factory owners. Uh, but the anarchists would be targeting factory owners. And this went on for a little while, and there'd be some concessions. But then, obviously, the factory owners and the merchant class, they've obviously got far greater resources than what a group of motivated anarchists do. So what did they do? Well, they just hired thugs 
to go around and brutally kill them and brutally put down these, these this dirty war uprising. So I think actually the best of the best guess, the best estimation of of uh, mortalities of that period of pistolerisme is that many more people, many more anarchists, many more people from the working class were actually killed in this than than people in the upper class. But I think its legacy is is it's much greater. You know, it's it speaks to a story of fighting for rights. It speaks to uh, working for better conditions because we have to remember, you know, we're talking about people who who lived in slums essentially, people who worked. Uh, up to 12, 16 hours a day, seven days a week. Nutrition, nothing was known about nutrition at the time. So if you got sick, basically there was no labor rights. If, if you didn't work, you didn't earn anything. You'd very easily just get sicker and sicker. You'd very easily die if, if you had like, what today's by today's standards a fairly simple disease. It could have easily killed someone back then. So there was a lot to fight for. You know, this is a world completely different to what we're used to right now. And um it's sort of important to remember like where our fantastic health systems that we have at the moment came from where our fantastic where the rights that we have came from paid paid leave in in uh in jobs at least we have that here anyway it's just more it's more of a hot topic in other parts of the world <laughs> and where football came from because the weekend is essentially was a result of fighting for workers rights wasn't it and so you had your sunday off and that's where the football came from you you made the reference to the pistol and that is one of the parts of the story that jumps out of hiding guns in footballs i, d- I know it, francesc said it may not necessarily be true but it doesn't stop the jupiter fans bringing this to life and reminiscing about it <laughs> I, yes that's that's a, that's exactly it yeah like not only do they do they celebrate it but like there's some fantastic stickers that they have st- celebrating it so uh, like just you see the out like almost like an x-ray of a football with just a gun in the middle of it um yeah it's absolutely brilliant that that story that story is genuinely crazy back in the 1920s um as i said there was a the first of two fascist dictatorships in spain at the moment and with the backdrop of this dirty war with the bourgeoisie with the merchant class uh, the stadium of jupiter which is actually not the current stadium that they have but it was the prior one out in poble now um that was just used as as a barracks to a completely clandestine barracks completely like nobody knew about it at the time only the people who hid their weapons there but of course you needed to you needed to hide them somewhere so that's that, that's one place where anarchists really felt comfortable it's where they went on their on their weekends to go to the matches and you know maybe on the stands they'd have a political chat or something that discussed the, the issues of the day and uh come up with plots about what to do about those issues and and of course they had they had comp- like free reign i guess of the ground something which actually hasn't really changed much in the, in, in the hundred years since because it's it's fantastic when like it's so much fun going to a game there especially if you go with the ultras and get to know them a bit but the last game that i was at a couple of months ago i was told about a, a tradition that a few of the lads have where at half time they go out, they open the doors to the stadium themselves, which is not the main gates at all. It's it's one at their end of it. They pop around to just some bar around the corner and just have a shot of whiskey at halftime. And <laughs> it's just a tradition that they've made, you know. And this is after, you know, games usually kick off at 12 noon, by the way. And this is, you'd already be three or four beers in from the first half. So shot of whiskey then at halftime. 
um yeah you'll be you'll be in a jolly singing mood after that i can tell you that from personal experience yeah just to get back to the the hide and the weapons in the football it, it wasn't only in footballs that 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 the reports are but also beneath the stand where where all the fans would be during matches as i said you know the historian francesc he wasn't uh he didn't want to verify it 100 percent because it's a kind of thing that can't be proven you know there'd be no documentary evidence of it but you know, from my view, and you know, to take a bit of artistic license, I'd like to believe that it's true because so many people have spoken about it. You know, word of mouth would come, would come round, and it's it's never going to be a thing that would photos would be taken of anyway. You know, so I'm happy enough to believe it. <laughs> I choose to believe it as well. Yeah, Killian, you kind of touched on it a bit in your previous answer, but how how um, big a part of the current kind of contemporary folklore and culture of the club? is kind of reliant on this this history that you describe yeah yeah it's it it is quite important um i think everybody who goes to jupiter matches i think they know about the history and in fact in the current ground that they have which i explain in the article it's not the original ground they were actually moved to a a very barren a very boring part of the city quite intentionally as a way to sort of rip them apart from their social fabric rip them apart from from this anarchist hub where they were first based so their current stadium anyway they've got when the players come out of the tunnel they have the tunnels designed in in this fabulous way uh, dozens if not hundreds of old photographs of the the history of the team the history of the neighborhood what the whole neighborhood means as an industrial hub like it's um it, it's it's being made very clearly where you know where this the essence of this club comes from so the players are made aware of it the club also even do plenty of um like tours especially on not every week or anything it's not a regularly scheduled thing but if there's a special event be it a couple of weeks ago f- to celebrate something for like uh the museum's day the club will bring some people in they'll invite people uh, and they'll, they'll be given a, a history of the club, a history of the neighbourhood. Um, it, it, it is a concerted effort that the current board of the club, which have been in power for only around the past 10 or so years, maybe even less, it's something that they're focused on. It's something that they really want to revive, um, to really revive this identity of the club. Because for a long period of time, sort of after after Franco moved them to where they are right now in San Martí, up until much more recent times, the club was, its history was, I don't want to say forgotten, but it definitely wasn't front and centre of their identity, you know. I have to say, like, the I, I mentioned briefly just there earlier on in my answer that the club were moved intentionally by Franco, the second of two fascist dictators that Spain had in the 20th century, uh, specifically with the aim of removing it from their social fabric. And I have to say that worked, you know. The, the club descended in the divisions, fewer and fewer people went to it and this club was at a time 100 years ago it was easily the third biggest club in in catalonia if not possibly even the second biggest uh, i mentioned in the article that they even won the second division uh of of all of spain uh once back in their day you know so this was a huge club this is a hugely popular club that it, it was really brought to its knees with, with a move not only were they forced to move stadium move to a different part of the city where they could basically not really attract many fans but as well as that they were also forced to change their name over time uh, they were known as hercules for a while i don't know something to do with the greek gods if you can see the connection it sounds like a pro evo version of jupiter <laughs> yeah. exactly yeah <laughs> 
But not only that, but they, they were actually forced to change their colors and their crest. So the, the, the identity was completely changed. Um, and it's only in, in more latter decades that, that they've reverted back to the original colors, uh, the original crest, the original name. Obviously, the, the name Hercules didn't last too long. But for a long, long time, they played in green and white, whereas their normal colors, their original colors and their current colors are a sort of a maroon, a wine maroon and grey, which I have to say is, is one of the most unique sets of colours for in, in the world. I don't think I can name another club that play in grey and maroon. Um, so it's, it's real fantastic. It's like part of their identity. Your article deeply explains how this club was uh, repressed and oppressed as a result of the upheaval in Spanish society throughout the 20th century and that that move to not only destroy its where it was based but destroy its identity by franco for example was linked directly with its catalan colors to the mass if you like its catalan identity your reference in the piece i think it was a, a, an official found a belt buckle on the ground that resembled the club crest and was in the catalan colors and therefore he requested that the club change its crest is that right that's basically it yeah it was somebody from the the city council at the time who you know he was brought in by primo de rivera the, the first fascist dictator <laughs> uh basically when when the fascist governments take over the country they install all their own people all their own henchmen in in the local governments in the regional governments everything like that so it was a loyalist obviously to the to the dictator at the time and yes you, you have you have the story exactly right he found a belt that was it was, it was of the club crest and the club crest if you notice it has a big star right in the top in the middle of it and that star sort of goes along with the, the Catalan nationalist flag, which is called the Estelada, which is it's different to the, 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 the Catalan flag. That's the flag of the region, uh, which, which has no star on it. So they're, politically, they're, there's a very important distinction there. The one with, with the star sort of implies they, they want independence. And the one without the star means it's sort of happy to be part of Spain, you know. Uh, but exactly. So this official from the local government came across this belt buckle did a bit of digging did some questioning found out what it was and he just got this resemblance with the uh with with catalan nationalism so before that football wasn't even on his mind you know it wasn't a case of uh, they were being too rowdy at the matches or, or starting any uprisings or anything like that it was just yeah he found this symbol it resembled far too much the idea of catalan national expression um so yeah he moved to have them put down a little bit i think they were given a fine i think maybe that's when they were they're forced to change their crest i think for the first time you mentioned the crest i have to talk about the illustration i don't know if you've seen it yet killian but the illustration with your article is by own brady he only took up illustrating during the pandemic but when you see this spread, it's quite incredible. It's a treat to go along with what is a fascinating article. Sorry, can I just say, uh, I, I've seen maybe a little, a few hints of what Pogue Magolov put up on social media. Uh, and what I've seen there, I'm, I'm not sure if that's the full thing or if, or if it's only part of it. But what I've seen is absolutely fantastic. Anyway, I'm very, very much looking forward to seeing that like physically in my own hands. Um, and as well, I'd just like to take the opportunity to even commend you guys on the artwork that you put in the magazines. Certainly, when I was looking for some outlets to write these articles for, once I found Pogba Gold, for me, it was obvious that one, it was Irish, that I wanted to 
contribute to something that's Irish. And two, just the magazines that you produce are absolutely beautiful. Like they're, they're works, and art, works of art in and of themselves. So for me to have my name beside that, beside these illustrations, it's just an honor for me. So well done to you guys. No, the pleasure is, is all ours, Killian. So I encourage everyone to um, jump on our social medias to see it. And of course, pick up the copy to read the article. But this is a club operating in the sixth tier, essentially. But Killian, you've done a brilliant job of selling it as somewhere to go and see this club. And it, it strikes me that there's a lot more of this cropping up. I know Key has recently been to Red Star in Paris and he has said... Genuinely, it's one of the best footballing experiences he's had. We had, as I said before, David Toms on talking about Bohemians in Prague, who, um, another friend of the podcast, the uh, Friday Live guys, had been to visit them. And they said that is one of the best experiences they had, was going to see Bohemians of Prague rather than kind of the Spartas. I mean, the, the, the obvious one that jumps is the San Paulis, but these kind of clubs are becoming more and more known the clubs are celebrating the history no more so than kind of bohemians in dublin and and irish clubs this feels like a movement in football culture around the world and and you've done a job of selling jupiter as you wouldn't think of going to barcelona and going to watch a six-tier football team well thanks very much anyway for the for the very kind words there i have to say um, but I totally agree with you like I think it I think there is a movement happening now in football fandom and I wouldn't necessarily only link it towards clubs that have any particular special history um, such as Jupiter that have this amazing storied past uh, I wouldn't only link it towards link it with clubs like Bohemians in, in Prague um, but sort of a, a return to this more authentic style of like experiencing football um something that's sort of been on my mind for years um is just uh, we're, we're living through an era of football that is it's grotesque honestly like in the news at the moment certainly here we see reports about how much money PSG are offering Kylian Mbappe and then you know the counter offers that we're getting from Real Madrid and you know, we could name San Andreo and Jupiter are two clubs that I've written about. I'd say the two of them combined in their entire history haven't spent or haven't had that amount of money go through their doors in their entire history as what Kylian Mbappe would earn reportedly in one week with his new contract, whoever it's going to be with. So there's this sense, I think, that's, that's growing that even though the product on the pitch is marvellous, it's, it's, it's an incredible spectacle when you watch these hugely dramatic champions league games for, for me i love that but you know to me that's a television program that's that's almost not like real life that's not real football that's that's the gods playing you know but the real football is the one that you go to that you know you can get a pint for two euro in the little beer shack that's just behind the goal you can you sing and chant and, and and the players come over and give you a hug when they score a goal uh, you, you go and you meet your mates, you know, before it, after it, you know. In many cases in San Andreo, for example, uh, the star striker, Fasani, everybody that goes to the San Andreo games in, in the ultra section, they know him personally. Like, they go to barbecues with him. Fasani, the, the star striker, will go to barbecues 
uh, with the lads before games. He's from Uruguay, so the whole culture of the asado is, is very, very important there. And there's a few guys also from Uruguay and a few lads from Argentina as well that'll put on that special South American style barbecue that, that he that he absolutely loves. So like for me, football is sort of it's growing into two different things you know one there's the champions league there's the all the riches all the money and to me that 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 both fascinates me and disgusts me fascinates me in the sense that yeah the talent is there and you know i love watching the matches you know i love what happens on the pitch but everything off the pitch with ever increasing money uh attempts to perform the breakaway super league all of this repulses me um, so that's on one side, I think, of, of football at the moment. And then there's this other side, which is much more down to earth, much more realistic. Um, but of course, there's a huge chasm between the Champions League and sixth, seventh, eighth tier Catalan football. You know, there's I don't want to say anything bad about like about anything in between either. You know, I think that's much more realistic as well. Taylor, for example, on this call is a Portsmouth fan. And I would regard that in the same degree as, as you know, going to an eighth tier match. It's at least it's your local club. Mm, it's steady. No, 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 no. Obviously, you beat an eighth tier club on the pitch, but I mean, I, I'm I'm trying to commend us in the sense that it's real. Yeah, it's, it's real. real it's authentic. Exactly. You go to the match. You experience a match rather than just watch it on TV. You know, you're there, part of a crowd, plenty of other people. You know, you, you you're given the sights and the sounds that you just cannot get when you're only watching it on TV. I wanted before we finish to talk about said you lived in Madrid, you're working for a Catalan news agency and studying like stories like this and how it's still relevant today. Do you get that sense of rivalry and political tension between the two regions now that that you live and work in Catalonia? Totally, totally, totally. Yeah. If anything, I can see it stronger than ever, you know, now that I'm, I am here, you know. <laughs> no, it's, it's absolutely the case. Um, and, you know, since I moved here, um and from when between when i moved here and now both in catalonia and in the central spanish government they've changed administrations uh both have moved towards governments that have a much more a warmer approach toward the other so for example in in 2017 when when catalonia held its its independence referendum which is obviously deemed illegal by by spanish courts so we've seen a lot of protests about that um, and of course, on the day of the vote, there was plenty of savage beatings indiscriminately from police, just cracking the heads of any granny or child that they that happened to be in their way. Um, at that time, there were two governments in place that were much more aggressive towards one, one another. Um, the party that was leading the coalition in Catalonia at the time, they're now the junior partners in the coalition with, with the same party now. Um, their outlook was no we're going to declare independence and that's that you know they can deal with whatever we whatever we do you know and now at the moment the party that's in charge in Catalonia has a much more they're much more open to dialogue that's that's their whole outlook you know they want to say look their their aim their objective their political goal is still independence but they have a complete opposite way of trying to achieve that goal they want to agree a referendum with Spain um which personally to me makes more sense because if you're to just declare independence, you know, if you ever have any uh, desire to get into the European Union as a basic thing, well, Spain will just veto it if they haven't agreed to it. So you'll be kind of politically isolated. So to me, I think, you know, you have to work towards, um, if you want independence, you have to work towards agreeing on it. 
Um, and at the moment, it's the Socialist Party who are leading the, the government in Madrid, uh, in, in, in Spain, I should say. Um, they're also backed up by a junior partner of Podemos, which are even further left-wing than them, which are sort of open towards a, allowing a referendum, but you know it, it, they would probably prefer unity as well at the same time but it's at the moment yeah we're in a sort of a strange political limbo whereby both sides are saying yeah 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 we'll dialogue and then their opponents on each side are saying like this dialogue is a charade you know but both sides want completely separate things that both sides are not going to move from their positions one wants they say oh yeah we're gonna agree a referendum and the other side are saying there's no chance a referendum will ever be agreed but we'll still engage in dialogue yeah 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 uh, so it's sort of a no man's land at the moment, sort of like, we'll, we'll see what happens. It's fascinating to observe. And as we try to do in a lot of these podcasts and in the magazine, observe these movements through the prism of football. I should say you addressed that Catalan referendum in the last issue and how it, how it affected um, the reaction to the next uh, Clásico and the reaction to that amongst the fans and whether Barcelona recognise it enough or did enough. So again, I'd urge readers to go back and read that one. I mean, there's just so much we could talk to you, Killian, and we'd have to get you back on. But before we do leave, give you a chance to tell people about your other article in issue eight, which is about, as I said, Christ's lesser known and less successful time at Levante. Just give a little preview of that article. Yeah. Basically, when Cruyff uh, was nearing the end of his career, he essentially trusted this charming Russian Frenchman who was his neighbor at the time, uh, Michel Basilevich, I think is, is how it's pronounced. Um, essentially, he this guy gained the trust of Cruyff and his wife and <laughs> convinced them to let him take over their investments to control their whole property and everything. And... <laughs> It didn't take long for him to absolutely burn through the vast majority of the money that Cruyff had saved up. Uh, most notoriously, a pig farm that Cruyff was supposed to be in charge of or something. Um, no one really knows how that came about, but it was clearly never going to work. So Cruyff found himself sort of in the latter end of his career without the money saved up as what he hoped to. So, of course, he went to the United States, uh, made a pretty penny there taught the americans a thing or two and then wanted to come back to europe um but he was always looking for good financial recompense and an enjoyable lifestyle and valencia is as good a city as any to to enjoy the lifestyle there just a bit south of catalonia on the beach as well and he joined levante which at the time were in the second division um but they had a president who was, was particularly, he was a character, he was. He was a kind of this typical loudmouth, typical promise far more than he can deliver kind of guy. But somehow or another, he ended up convincing Cruyff to join Levante to try and spearhead this team to the first division. You know, they're going to sell out the stadium. They're going to take half of the revenue from every away match that they visited because, you know, he envisaged... You know, full crowds to see Johan Cruyff everywhere he went. Um, so, you know, it, it sounds like an amazing dream. Did it work? Absolutely not. Um, what did happen was, yes, they would play away matches and the, the crowd would go completely mad to see Cruyff. But, you know, they wouldn't be there supporting Cruyff. They'd be there abusing him, abusing Levante and spurring their own team on to beat them, which happened in the majority of cases. 
Uh, even before Cruyff joined the team, it seemed to sort of disrupt the dynamic in the dressing room. It seemed to be like this crazy idea that the president wanted that, you know, the the team was going well. You know, the team were either first or second. They were they were they're in the playoff. They're in the promotion spots, automatic promotion, before Cruyff joined. But pretty much as soon as talk started, you know, and the president Asnar was in the papers every day saying, "Oh, we're gonna do this. We're gonna we're gonna make a million euros at doing everything, making a lot of promises." As soon as he started this whole charade, the team's fortunes just started going down and down. Um, they they before even Cruyff even joined, they they dropped a few positions in the league, and then after that, you know, he seemed to be on a completely different wavelength towards all the rest of his all the rest of his teammates. He seemed a bit frustrated that they weren't as good as him, that they didn't just automatically know to make the movements that Cruyff expected, and it didn't really work out at all. Shortly afterwards, the manager was sacked, and they brought in one of Cruyff's mates that he knew from Barcelona. Um, and in the end, basically the, the the same thing just kept on happening. Um, poor results. They dropped down the table. Um, it even happened on a couple of occasions that Levante would turn up to an away match. Cruyff would be in the starting lineup, and you know the the, the boards would say to the the home team that they were visiting. Okay, so you know here, take a look. Cruyff is playing. So you know, give us loads of money, please. Give us all the gate receipts here. And obviously, naturally, the home team would refuse and say, no, this never happens. This is not a normal procedure. You're not getting our money. And Cruyff would just go home. He'd be in the starting 11 and he would just go home. He's like, right, I'm not playing. If I'm not getting paid, I'm not playing. And, you know, you can leave the... I'll I'll leave this mess here for you to clean up. Um, So, yeah, unfortunately, the last game that Cruyff was contracted with Levante, he didn't even bother showing up for it. They'd already missed out on the chance to get promoted, and instead he decided to go back up to Barcelona to play in a testimonial match for one of his former teammates. Yeah. It's a brilliant article, Killian. They're both brilliant articles, and it, it gives, I, I wasn't aware of that aspect of Cruyff, the celebrated Cruyff, his career, just like I wasn't aware of Jupiter. So I, I think our readers are going to enjoy both of them immensely so Killian it's been a pleasure having you on the podcast as I said we'll have to get you back on because there's just so much more to talk about and you've a, a fascinating insight into what is a great footballing country so thank you very much for joining us on the podcast the pleasure is all mine thank you very much James thank you very much Taylor and yeah looking forward to, to the next edition coming out very soon and looking forward to chatting with you guys the next podcast that we do and that's it for the latest episode of the Paul McGall podcast. Drop us a rating and subscribe wherever you get your pods and toggle back for previous shows. Don't forget, you can now order the all-new issue 8 of the magazine online at pogmagall.com with worldwide delivery and get in touch via our social media channels. Join us next time on the Pogmagall podcast.